Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Open Floor. I'm Andrew Sharp, and on the other line, Ben Golliver. What's up, man? Not too much, Andrew. I believe this is going to be our last episode of 2017, and it's got me in a little bit of a reflective mood. I can't lie. You know, I I might start getting gushy and in my feelings here. I'm very thankful for you this year. I've mentioned this before, but you're great at making people around you better and kind of getting people in the mood, you know, just to Uh be happier, friendlier, more jovial people. And let's be honest, Andrew, I needed that this year. You know, if we rewind 12 months, I was kind of in a solitary mental confinement, a little bit curmudgeonly, and you really pulled me out of my shell this year, so I thank you. On top of that, I also want to thank our listeners big time. Open Floor Globe was the best thing that happened to me in 2017. I went back and looked. We started openfloormail at gmail.com in April, and since then, it has brought us daily laughter, daily text message conversation fodder unbelievable number of jokes memes and so forth so i am going into 2018 grateful for you grateful for the listeners and then i believe ready to make fun of the toronto raptors here in a second wow i did not expect to start things out on this benevolent note here but i love it um yes thank you to everyone who's listened this year it's been very cool and thank you to Golliver for making me a smarter basketball fan um can I, can I also tell you what prompted that a little bit? So what? I was up late I'm, answering emails to all the Lego people. You know, the the brickheads came out in full force, just like I knew they would. So I was engaged in, you really know, did. global conversations with Lego builders, my fellow Lego uh, builders around the world. And then I wake up and I get a request from one of our listeners who wants to know the name of the hotel where the old guys were watching baseball instead of partaking in Giannis's brilliance, which of course is my favorite hotel, the Dearborn Inn. So I was just feeling pulled in all these great directions by human interaction. That's something I needed more of in my life. And and I thank the listeners for providing it. That's good. You're one with the universe right now. I love it. Um, I am in New York recording this where it's like 10 degrees outside and I'm just happy to be inside and have an excuse to be in, be inside for the next hour and 30 minutes. So I'm with you. Um, and I don't know, should we dive in here? Let's do it. Okay. So we have two questions from our two, two Jimmy Butler questions to kick things off here. First one is from Waz, who says, has anyone in the NBA been better the last three weeks than the Ben Golliver of basketball. Jimmy Butler is dominating, and I did not appreciate how good he is. And then the second question is from Rod, who says, why won't people talk about what an effing a-hole Jimmy Butler is? You guys came close a few weeks ago, but you didn't quite get there. Of course there are chemistry problems in Minnesota. Jimmy Butler is there. The last three years of Bulls basketball was chemistry problems, because everybody hated Jimmy Butler. So I really enjoyed that second one. It was from, it was from like two weeks ago, maybe. Um, so it's a little late now. We've, we've transitioned to like full-on Jimmy Butler love around the NBA. I wrote about him yesterday. Um, but what do you think, man, of what, of, of what he's done in Minnesota this season? Because to me, I think he might be making a bigger difference than anyone outside of LeBron and Harden like I think the Wolves if we're being real about it the Wolves would probably be clinging to an eighth seed right now and Jimmy Butler has them fourth in the west and he's closing games 
every night and uh i don't know i've i've been kind of blown away i was a, i was a big fan of jimmy's game coming into the year and like anyone i talked to i said look that dude is a monster people aren't really prepared for how good he's gonna make the wolves and i was expecting cat to be a little better than he's been i was expecting wiggins to be better than he's been and so far like there's reason for concern when you watch minnesota and then you also watch Jimmy Butler kind of render all those problems irrelevant. Well, my first concern here is, you know, I come out so nice to you. And then the first question off the top is comparing me to a bleeping bleep. And <laughs> I just, I'm a little nervous about who's like these questions. But look, the, the number one stat to me with Jimmy Butler in recent years, if you don't want to go by the real plus minus and, you know, the real plus minus always says he's unbelievable. But the other right. stat to look at is his team's, a net rating when he's off the court. Last year with the Bulls, they were god-awful. They were basically like the worst team in the league anytime he, he was off the court. And surprise, surprise, you know, Fred played him a lot, just like, you know, Thibodeau did before. It's the exact same thing in Minnesota. They are one team with Jimmy, and they are completely uh, other team when he's on the bench. And I was so tickled because you asked me for some stats about Jimmy this week. That was the first one I gave you for your piece. I thought the piece came out great. Uh, you looked very smart by putting him in the MVP conversation right before <laughs> uh, that big night. And did you catch that camera angle late in that game where I believe he broke off Jamal Murray uh, in overtime, if I'm not mistaken, and the camera pans to him and he's uh, you know, saying something along the lines of like, this guy can't hang with me, but he's throwing in a few uh, extra expletives. That is what sets Jimmy Butler apart. That's what makes all of his annoyances worth it. That competitive edge, it does trickle down. Uh, I think I've mentioned before, I thought he went a little too far towards bullying uh, with Towns and Wiggins in terms of like the minutes played and asking guys to suck it up. I was a little bit right. nervous on Christmas when he's like doubled over in exhaustion, you know, barely beating the Lakers and playing 40 plus minutes. That had me like rolling my eyes a little bit. But the guy is an absolute gamer. He might not still be on this level five, six, seven years from now. That's probably too much to expect given how his career track has gone. Uh, but he is a fun watch. And for Minnesota fans, He's the reason why their playoff drought's going to end, period. I mean, he is, you circle one name and it's his. Yeah, yeah, it's funny. Like, you mentioned the Bulls last year. That's one of the reasons I was sort of on guard for for a huge Jimmy Butler season this year because, like, watching Chicago, the Bulls were so fucking miserable for, for like, six months last season. And they really had no business being as good as they were. Like they, I think they won 42 games, and which is kind of a miracle when you consider the levels of dysfunction that they were dealing with. But it was a testament to Jimmy, and like he he had a a good case as like an MVP dark horse last year, just given how valuable he was to that mediocre Bulls team. And uh, and so like when I when I was writing about him this week, like. I didn't really want to frame it in MVP, MVP terms in part because it's too early to like get dive into the MVP race. It's never too early. I mean, it's, never. I don't know. Dive it's, in. It's pretty Head early. First. It's pretty early. But the main reason I did it is because I think a lot of people think of Jimmy Butler in like good all-star terms and, and don't ever put him in the conversations with like the best players in the game. And I, I think he belongs closer to that Giannis, Harden, Westbrook territory than like 
the Kyle Lowry, DeMar DeRozan, like these guys are perennial all-stars, but not necessarily all NBA talent. Like Jimmy is elite. And, uh, and I think we're seeing it this year and he is like, he's incredibly domineering. <laughs> like that's just who he is. And I think there's a, there's another conversation to be had about whether that's healthy for the development of Carl Towns and whether that is, he's sort of like smothering Wiggins a little bit. Um, but I, I think for now, the, it, what he's doing essentially is buying time for everybody in Minnesota, and uh, and he's just so much fun to watch because he is an asshole, but he's like probably the best asshole in the NBA. He's 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 just constantly grinding people to death, and it's great. I'm just honored to be mentioning the same sentence with him. I appreciate that. And the, the, <laughs> yeah. A lot of those qualities is, that you just it's mentioned. It's a compliment and a that, criticism. It's the, good. No, those are things I strive for in my daily life, so I love it. Uh, I hope he keeps representing for us. And by the way, in that email, the first one, I got challenged. I mean, the guy was asking if I felt pressure to live up to the title of Jimmy Butler. I want the you know Matt Waz, the emailer, to know when he emailed that, I was in the middle of like a 3,500-word recap of 2017. And if there's anything <laughs> that we've learned is that nobody cares about recaps or like backward-looking anything anymore. It's all about the future. So I just want you to know I'm on my grind, Waz. I'm bringing it. I was also compared to Kyrie Irving by a couple emailers, which is sort of the same double-edged sword because Kyrie's great. Kyrie is also an idiot half the time. But, uh, but hey, he's an all-star. He's elite. If you listen to people in Boston, he's a franchise player, so I'll take it. <laughs> um, I'm good with that. All right, moving on here. This is a question that you have tried to include in the mailbag several times. Um, from Torsten, he says, Quick question about something I've noticed in the NBA that really bugs me. Do you guys agree with the idea that NBA defenses overhelp all the time? I see this happen multiple times every game by both teams, and I just don't understand why they're doing this. Isn't a contested layup better than an open corner three? Please let me know if this bugs you guys too. Now, I am not one to get particularly fired up about defensive rotations. So I will let you take this one. I was so glad to see this question. It's fascinating because it's one of these where if you've been watching the game, like for the last 10 years, uh, it really bugs you how defense is played now. If you've only come in the la- you know the last couple of years during the three-point era, uh, it would just totally bamboozle you why teams don't play defense from the outside in. I guess we should probably call it like reprogramming, right? I mean, when we were growing mm-hmm. up playing, I'm sure, you know, on your youth teams, you never wanted to give up no free points around the basket, right? Wasn't that the mantra and guards would always double down on the really good big players and you'd constantly swarm the ball and you'd go for steals and you'd play defense basically inside out. The big concern was taking away stuff at the rim. A lot of guys who are in the NBA right now grew up with those same principles and the principles have just completely changed. I mean, when you're playing five out basketball, your responsibilities are just so much different when there's no one in the paint at all to collapse on. Uh, and it just forces you to make all these tricky decisions about, you know, when should I help? When should I not? There's no question that the worst defensive teams in the league consistently leave corner three-point shooters open in situations that they shouldn't. Um, and I think that is, you know, Torsten sent some examples of teams doing that and he was right on the money. I mean, that's certainly an issue. Uh, but the reprogramming is going on on both sides. You know, as defenses try to adjust, 
offenses are still trying to get this stuff right too. And I just want to point people, go look up a, a nice piece by James Herbert on the Raptors. I believe it was like, you know, two weeks ago or so where he wrote about some of the drills they were doing during training camp to reprogram yeah. their offense. You know, they were making like corner threes were worth four points, you know, contested bad twos were uh, worth fewer points. I mean, they were trying to really get into their players' minds what kind of shots those guys should be taking. And this is why it's so frustrating from an analyst standpoint, because, you know, we've seen teams understand and master this stuff three years ago. So when other teams come along and they're just learning, it's kind of hard to take them seriously because you know they're so far behind the curve. Uh, but I think there will be a time here in the next couple of years where the reprogramming will sweep through the league. The players coming into the NBA will have these new ideas about how principles should work and the type of really boneheaded overhelping stuff uh, will reduce. And that should open things up in the inside, maybe for big guys to play more one-on-one or for guys like LeBron and Giannis to feast even more on the inside. Yeah. I mean, you talk about reprogramming. I'm probably more interested in the offensive side of it because I feel like we're getting closer and closer. The thing that drives me crazy, like Torsten here talked about uh, contested layup versus an open three. And for me, in almost every NBA game I watch now, like there will be one sequence where a player will pass up an open layup and kick to someone for an open three. And, and that is a, a testament to the way the game has been reprogrammed over the last couple of years. And I wonder whether there's going to be a tipping point where like teams figure out how to guard that better. Because right now, I don't understand why any team wouldn't just play like the Rockets all the time. And like you, you, you I think you mentioned uh, Milwaukee. Like I would just put Giannis at center and surround him with shooters and and sort of and basically that's what Cleveland has done too. But I wonder whether we're going to sort of hit a point where teams are able to crack that code because right now it seems like offenses are like five years ahead of defenses. And that's one of the reasons we've seen this like explosion in scoring over the last four or five years. Yeah. So I'm going to give you 60 seconds of Warriors slobbering. So for the anti-Warriors people (laughs) out there. It basically all started with the Warriors. Absolutely. No, but your point about passing up the twos for the threes is a great one. And the Warriors really started doing that with the transition stuff where if they're running a two-on-one fast break, instead of trying to get that perfectly timed pass for a layup at full speed, you just run to the three-point line three. and have a wide-open catch-and-shoot three for Clay or for Steph or for anybody. And sometimes they're pulling up off the dribble, but sometimes it's that cross-court pass to Clay, who's just wide open, and you know it's basically like a layup for him. What happened was teams really did adjust to that. I mean, they started tracking those shooters so carefully uh, you know, in, in response to Golden State's new strategy that it opened up uh, the middle entirely. There's that famous play, I believe, in the finals last year where everyone's running to cover the three-point line and KD just you know dribbles right down the paint and has yeah. a completely uncontested dunk. I mean, that was such a brilliant move by them, the counter-adjustment staying ahead of uh, the defense's uh, adjustments by adding a player like KD who can you know, take it end-to-end and attack the rim, uh, get deep into the heart of a defense, whether in transition or in the half court, uh, that basically is why they're unguardable because it doesn't matter how tightly you stick to the three-point line, they can beat you inside now too. Yeah, it's been pretty entertaining to watch the Warriors this year because um, even before Steph went down, it sometimes seems like they're going out of their way not to take those pull-up threes or to kick for threes. Like they're actually running more of an offense inside the arc 
now, um, which sometimes I watch that and I'm like, this is just Steve Kerr being stubborn and <laughs> trying to prove a point to his players because they could play like the Rockets and absolutely dominate. But, uh, but I think maybe for the good of the game, he's like trying to keep the mid-range alive. But yeah, that's, it's one thing that like, I don't put too much thought into it because the, the league is in a great spot right now and probably has not been better since in, in like 10 or 20 years. Um, so I'm not really complaining about any of this, but it is something that I wonder about sometimes. Like I, the, the Rockets will have these games where they shoot like a historic number of threes and win. And it like, I don't understand why more teams wouldn't push that boundary. And I'm sure we'll get there sooner rather than later. Um, but then we'll always have teams like the Thunder who are willing to just sort of like ISO it up a little bit, take a mid-range or, or like take a, a Paul George 21-footer, and uh, they're making that work too. Yeah, sort of. Uh, I'm not going to say <laughs> sort it's, of. They, it, they it's were. A, not quite a home run. I mean, it's working a little bit better more recently, but you know, the numbers It's a here, good segue to our next question here, though. Because yeah. we, we, the, the Thunder whooped the Raptors' ass last night, and we've been late on the Raptors' bandwagon, which is good because I, I think it allows us to discuss them with a little bit more perspective. Um, I watched OKC Toronto, and Kyle says, I feel like someone needs to intelligently defend my Raptors here, unlike that bozo from a few weeks ago who emailed in and tried to compare them to the most competent sports franchise of the past 25 years in San, to- <laughs> San Antonio Spurs. I remember Kyle that says, very well. <laughs> yes, that was a, a, a rough experience for Golliver. He's just now getting over it. Um, Kyle says, to me, the comparison is the early 2000s Pistons, a solid team with no real transcendent superstars, but a good organization with solid depth and pieces that work well together. The only difference is that the Pistons were lucky and that they missed Jordan's Bulls, whereas the Raptors are stuck with LeBron. So what do you think? Well, first of all, I was a little bit rude to the last Canadian who emailed in, and I've been catching a lot of heat for that, so I'm going to tone it down a little bit. (laughs) First of all, Kyle, I like your tone. I like your approach. I like the fact that you're granting that the Raptors are not on the Spurs level. I do hate to break it to you, though. You're still guilty of overrating the Raptors' place in the league. Now, that Pistons team was very unique in terms of like teams that actually win the title. They're completely right. the exception to the rule. But I also think that fact skews how we remember them because that was a team that I believe made like four conference finals in a row or something close to that. The conference really for a while basically ran through them. They didn't have like the major transcendent stars like he's mentioning, but they've got some guys who are going to be knocking on the door of the Hall of Fame. And I just think that they had a level of dominance and control and sort of like stylistic and matchup, uh, you know, advantages at that point of time that the Raptors, really good point. The Raptors just don't have, the Raptors aren't on that level. The East is never going to go through Toronto, you know, during this era, just like it's not going through Boston this year. You know what I mean? So I have a better comparison for you for the Raptors and you tell me if you agree or not. Wait, wait. Before we do, though, I just want to say I appreciate your love for the mid two thousands Pistons because no, it's that's it's a not team. love, not love. Maybe <laughs> it's not okay. Be, it's be not grudging respect. <laughs> because, yeah, that's a better way to put it. But I do think that like we sort of bag on them all the time, and uh, I'm certainly like it was 
probably the ugliest era of NBA basketball of, of the last like 40 years. However, like whatever you want to say about the Pistons, they were elite in their one skill. Like they played defense and they just like bodied people every night for like three years. And, uh, and they did have more talent than people give them credit for. Like they had three or four, five all-stars depending on the year. And Chauncey Billups was really solid. Um, and the biggest difference for me when you look at the Raptors is like the, the Raptors are good at everything, but they're not really great at anything. The Pistons were definitely great at some of the uglier aspects of basketball for a couple of years there. For sure. So uh, along those lines, here's my comparison for them. When I look at the Raptors, okay. I see a team that, like you're saying, is good. It's complete. It's functional. They are going to have a nice, you know, extended window here of contention you know, their highs just aren't very high, you know, pretty ugly Eastern Conference finals. They'll be lucky to get back. Um, but they are in the mix. Uh, they've got stars who I think are rightfully considering themselves underrated. Guys like Lowry and DeRozan probably are right to feel snubbed. They've got an yeah. insane fan base. They've got a very clear identity too. the We the North stuff has really stuck. You know, you got to give them credit for that. Uh, and they're kind of in their own little bubble where it's them versus the world. And to me, all of those characteristics makes them basically the Memphis Grizzlies, like the grit and grind Grizzlies of the Eastern Conference. I mean, when you look at like Mark and Mike, you know, their overall tenure in terms of like the, the level of playoff success that they had, they made one Western Conference Finals. There's lots of first round exits. There's lots of like high raised hopes when they're playing really well and then hopes get dashed, you know, a week later. Uh, you know, they had pretty solid uh, complimentary oh, pieces. So to me, that's just sort of who they are. And again, that's why, you know, the Grizzlies, those Grizzlies teams, we like them. They're fun. I mean, I think you probably like them more than I did, but they're not going to last and endure in the same way that those Detroit Pistons team did. And I hate to break it to Canada. Like this Raptors group is not going to really have a legacy uh, in the bigger picture. They're obviously going to be remembered as the best, you know, era of Raptors franchise history. There's no doubt but I don't right. really think that they're going to be cutting through. Like when in 2030, you know, hopefully if we make it that long here as a society, we're going to look back and be like, oh, the golden era of the <laughs> Raptors, you know, 2015 or 2018, they just really did it. We're not going to do that. I'm sorry. You know, you really took the wind out of my sails on this one because I was all set to put a positive spin on the Raptors because I was watching them. They were losing to the Thunder and it was another, it was one of those games that made you sort of do a double take and wonder whether they have enough firepower to compete with like the best teams in the league, particularly in a playoff series. So that's number one. But I was thinking about it. And as even as they were losing, I was thinking, you know, they like re-signing Lowry and DeRozan is going to allow them to continue to win 50 games every year for the next year or two, three and they will have strung together like a, a crazy successful run of six or seven years here, which sort of solidifies culture in that organization and around that team. Like I know because one of the reasons the Wizards struggle to to like have real fan support and and have like consistent excitement about the team in the city is because they do shit like come out this year and just sort of like piss away any momentum they would have had, frustrate fans, and people just kind of check out. The Raptors don't do that, and what they've what it, what that's allowed them to do is build this sort of culture around the team where, like, 
fans are fired up for every game and the, the p- players come in there and they get better and it's really cool. And that's why I, there, I think there is more value than sometimes we acknowledge in, in like paying Kyle Lowry $30 million a year, even though he's not good enough to get them to the finals. But then you come through with the Memphis comparison and we were saying all the same things about the Grizzlies a couple years ago. And now it's gotten super dark so I don't want to go to like it's the Raptors still have sort of a complicated future, but I do think that like they even if they can't make the conference finals, they this is still like a, a very real success pro- provided that they can sort of manage the transition better than a team like the Grizzlies has. Yeah, I mean, the two word phrase that comes to mind when I think about the Raptors, it's like local celebrity. You know, I mean, that's sort of who they are. Like, they're so big there. They've got this whole The Six thing. Drake is the global ambassador. They've got pretty cool jerseys, good throwback jerseys, a cool court. Like you're mentioning, a diehard fan base. I think that needs to be enough for the Raptors fans. You know, I mean, we tried to praise them and suggest that they should be on Christmas and have a flex game to get on to Christmas. They come back right after Christmas with back-to-back losses to the Mavericks and the Thunder both of them pretty ugly. I mean, way to back up all your tough talk about wanting to play on Christmas. It's just frustrating. So from a national standpoint, uh, I don't even think that we necessarily overlooked them. We could probably talk about them more than we do, but I don't think that we're truly snubbing them as deeply as Raptors fans think we are. And I think that, you know, being a local celebrity, like if you're the, uh, you know, the the weather guy in Portland, Oregon, you're the man. You're signing autographs when you go to the the local grocery store. You know, everybody recognizes you at your kid's soccer game. That's a good Absolutely. life. That's, I mean, it, it might sound like a knock. It might sound like a backhanded yeah, compliment. You're being incredibly con- condescending here. But so I understand why Raptors fans would get pissed off. But you're not wrong either. Thank you. This is Jim Miller. And Origins is back. Recently, I gave you a behind-the-curtain look into the groundbreaking comedy Curb Your Enthusiasm. Now, it's time to take you on another ride. One that's nearly 40 years in the making. Available now. The podcast series Origins with James Andrew Miller. Chapter 2, a deep exploration into the world of ESPN. In five different episodes... We will reveal previously unheard and unpredictable moments that turned ESPN from a ramshackle couple buildings into one of the greatest media success stories of all time. Spanning its early beginnings, its meteoric rise to its current challenge state, you'll hear from all the key players in front of the camera and behind. Look for Origins with James Andrew Miller on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you download your programs. Next question from David. He says, I can't take credit for this post, but it needs to be included via NBA Reddit. It's they, this is a hypothetical that was thrown out on Reddit. It says, okay, so let's say you took the 1988 LA Lakers and just teleported them onto a court with the 2017 Golden State Warriors. You explain to them that they have been brought to the year 2017 to play basketball against the Warriors from 2017, but you tell them nothing more. So three questions. One, how long will it take them to figure out who the good Warriors players are? Two, 
How long do you think it takes the Lakers to figure out that they need to stop the three-pointer? For reference, the 88 Lakers and their opponents shot 11 threes per game combined. And three, how long would it take Michael Thompson to figure out that Clay is his son? So what do you think? Awesome questions. I mean, where do you want to start in terms of like the good Warriors? It basically boils down to how many threes does Steph need to make before they start picking him up at half court, right? I mean, isn't that sort mm-hmm. of the, the the crux of this question? Um, I think in any era, as long as there's a three-point line on the court, if, you know, it doesn't matter who you are, if you're the 1988 Lakers or you're playing in your local YMCA, if a guy comes down the court and hits three three-pointers in a row, he's on fire, you start guarding him, right? So I think that they would, on individual matchups, learn to defend the three-pointer much more closely than they did in 1988 pretty quickly. But I do think the cumulative effect of all of the Warriors threes, of all the Warriors shooting, of their outside-in approach would basically baffle uh, the Lakers. And they didn't have any sort of a contemporary team that would even come close to doing what the Warriors are doing. I mean, three-pointers are like way, way up, hundreds of percents in terms of number of attempts uh, since the 1980s. I think it would take them like two games and maybe two practices before they really had their head around the idea of like, okay, here's how we're going to approach this thing. And here's who we're going to take off the court, guys who we prefer to play, who are bigger. We've got to replace them with like our backup wings to give them more minutes. Uh, it would be an extended adjustment period. I I think you're right. It would take about two or three like blowout losses before everyone connected the dots and were like, oh, holy shit, we got to guard them at the three-point line first and last. Uh, but then I also think there are other interesting elements to this hypothetical because I think that they could play 50 games and no one would respect Draymond Green because – it's one of those things, like in real life, it took Draymond like a year and a half be- before people started talking about him as an all-star caliber player. So I just can't imagine like Kareem, Worthy, and Magic looking at Draymond, who doesn't really have any obvious skills, and, and treating him like a star. Um, the, and, the, and the threes thing, like if you, I just think... They, the, the 88 Lakers had won multiple titles by that point, and they were probably so arrogant about how good they were that they wouldn't be alert enough to appreciate what was happening. I think you're right that like Steph would probably have a couple trips down the floor where he hit like a 30-footer, and they would just be like, I, I don't know why he's good but something about that guy is evil and we need to stop him and guard him and uh and so maybe they throw james worthy on him and then michael thompson and clay i think michael thompson would probably realize relatively early like i think somewhere in the first quarter of the first hypothetical game against the 2017 warriors there would be like a a bizarre recognition. And I, I don't know, I don't know where it would go from there, but he would realize that like something is, something is off and, and he and Clay are are connected somehow. Yeah. I think he'd know very quickly. The reason why I actually listened to Michael Thompson do sports radio when I was growing up and he had a show with Kermit, Kermit Washington. Michael Thompson's hilarious, funny, great personality, but he also had like 5% 5% of the LeVar Ball gene in terms of like overprotective dad. Remember he was like joking that Clay was going to be on an allowance when he was in the NBA and 
you know, Clay had some issues at Washington State, I believe, with marijuana. And, you know, Michael Thompson was just flipping out about it publicly. And he wasn't to right. the point of like full fledged distraction, but he was definitely like over invested, uh, outspoken father. And I think that that's just an instinct that would kick in basically immediately. Like, I think he would tell Clay on site. Uh, that there was a genetic, you know, uh, shared genes between the two of them, and he would just get right into that mode. Uh, in terms of your point on Draymond, very good point. And he's very long. He's a great rim protector for the modern era, but I'm not sure Draymond's long enough to deal with the skyhook. You know, I would love to see like a little bit younger Kareem, you know, maybe early 80s instead of like later 80s Kareem, you know, yeah. try to ply his was, trade. He was pretty old in 88. At yeah. the, it's like he was more finesse. I would just like to see him ply his trade against these smaller ball lineups because I think that could get pretty ugly pretty quickly. But then on the other side, I mean, Kareem trying to track people out to the three-point line defensively would be uh, certainly... <laughs> yeah, like 38-year-old Kareem. Yeah, older Kareem would have a really, really hard time doing that. Um, one final point on the Warriors' time machine. I think everyone would instantly recognize that Durant's a baller. I don't think there would be any delay in that and I think the Mm -hmm. Lakers game plan would probably start with him like holy crap how do we slow this guy down and that would you know turn Steph loose as the as the difference maker yeah I agree I think Durant you can set him down in any decade and people would be like holy crap who is this guy and how do we possibly guard him um this the Steph experiment would be the most fascinating part of this, I think. Either that or or the Michael Thompson, Clay Thompson time traveling. Um, I'm not a I'm not a parent, but I do think I've heard that there's like w- there's a weird connection and recognition that happens. Um, although I guess it's not time traveling if it's your own kid, so I don't know. But um, well, I've been but reading yeah. these stories recently of like long lost siblings, like one was adopted and then like. There was one story where these guys were best friends and then they later found out they were brothers. I had the same mom. They didn't even know it their whole lives. Like, I think that it could be hit or miss in terms of that recognition okay. factor based on anecdotal evidence from like Us Weekly or whatever other you know, <laughs> there you web, go. Well, websites I'm reading to find these great stories. But We need to know more. Someone should write about this. Um, all right, next question. Brandon says, which team... which team in recent memory was the least likely or least deserving to win the title? What do you have? Uh, So this is tough because it's kind of like a personal attack on you and your worldview. Uh But I'm going to say that it was the most of the Spurs titles. They were the least like uh, if you go back over the if you go back over the last 20 years, those Spurs teams were the most underwhelming NBA champions that we had. Uh, I disagree. Um, I think a couple teams that came to mind, like sort of right off the bat. What about those Lakers back-to-back titles like 2009, 2010? It's sort of uh, almost a forgotten era uh, Mm -hmm. of the NBA. I'm not sure how great they were. And I also feel like the teams that came after them not to uh, far down the road, whether it was the Heat teams, like the Heatles, uh, the Spurs and the Warriors, they played so much smarter and like compelling and modern basketball. I kind of view those like 2009 and 10 Lakers teams as sort of like the end of the era almost. Um, I didn't think they got a real great challenge from either the Magic or the Celtics in those finals. Obviously, the Celtics series was pretty, you know, highly watched and uh, dramatic game seven and all that. But uh, to me, 
of the last 10 years, those are the ones that are probably the most forgettable. Although like 2007 Spurs Cavaliers, I mean, that's, that's a rough one. You know, I, I don't think people are really like it standing in line to buy the like commemorative and VHS really, te- tape of that. You that know? was the, that was the year the Suns should have won. I, I think that's part of why I resent the Spurs is because like those teams, they were fine. They were very good, but they denied like, the Steve Nash and they denied us the Steve Nash title. And I think that was the same year that there was like, uh, the suspensions in the Western conference semifinals. And I, they just have like the, the Spurs team that beat the heat in 2014 was amazing. That was so much fun to watch. And it was a whole different style, but like some of those grinded out Spurs teams, like, we we didn't need those titles. Um, no, but you're I'm gl- right. The, I'm glad the you clarified that. Too. No, I'm glad you clarified that, though, because I was going to come back as you are. I think the 2014 Spurs, you know, there could be a chance in like 40 years that I view them as my favorite team of all time. I mean, you look at their run. Uh, the series with Oklahoma City was unbelievable. Like Duncan coming through late, Parker's injured, all this drama. Manu has amazing moments uh, in the finals. Their offense is just clicking on an insane level. Uh, in Miami, just completely catches everybody by surprise. But then what people really forget about is Tim Duncan, mild-mannered Tim Duncan, a guy you've been making fun of for his entire career. He guaranteed he would beat the Heat after that Western Conference Finals. He says, we're going to do it. We're going to get our revenge. He told reporters that on the record. You never hear that. It wasn't a huge deal. And then he delivered and he did it. It was just fantastic. Great way to cap one of the greatest careers uh, in NBA history. That team should be remembered as one of the best champions in the last, you know, 10, 15, 20 years, rather than being lumped in with your biased opinion about their other worst champions. Right. Absolutely. And we, Brandon also asked which team was the the biggest letdown in a finals. And for me, I think the biggest letdown would probably be that 2014 Heat team because they kind of just like died halfway through that series and uh it was just sort of lebron out there and everybody else was going through the motions and it like it's one of those things where you look back and wonder how much lebron's impending free agency played into it because i've heard various things about like what people knew and when um but it was certainly kind of like bizarre to watch it happen although another testament to the spurs yeah, I would say that one wasn't as big of a letdown to me because I kind of expected the Spurs to just break them because I was completely all in and like Alamo vision, you know, I was just like <laughs> up to Alamo my eye. Vision. Yeah, I was just up to my eyeballs and Spurs, uh, you know, lust at that point. The, the yeah. Heat team that really th- I thought was the letdown and the biggest letdown probably of the last 20 years to me was the first Heat team against Dallas because I went into that series expecting a coronation, expecting them to smack the Mavericks. The Mavericks were like this upstart team. Even entering that series, you kind of felt like they didn't belong to be there. Dallas, you know, Dallas had a great final series, but still LeBron just checks out halfway through the series. Nobody else steps up. They were just kind of a mess. They weren't ready for primetime. To me, that was the biggest letdown. You know what's funny? And we've talked a lot about weird NBA history on this podcast for some reason and, and title teams. But like talking talking through this, it really like because the the Lakers Celtics series, particularly in 2010, was kind of a drag. Like it wasn't as exciting as it as it should have been. And uh, but then as soon as LeBron went to Miami, 
we've had a pretty incredible run of like awesome postseasons, and you got to give him credit. He sort of shook up the landscape a little bit because yes, that that Mavs Heat series, um, like the the Heat kind of fell apart, but that's one of my favorite like championship moments of my life really. And, uh, it we've been, we've been like getting B plus to a plus finals matchups ever since. So yeah, it's another also, reason to be grateful here as we hit well, 2018. Andrew, we're going to get slammed by our listeners if we don't mention a really obvious one. And now that I'm thinking about it, the single biggest letdown of any team of my lifetime, not to win the title. It was, the Golden State Warriors blowing the 3-1 lead. It just was. And they should have won that series. Draymond should not have got himself suspended. Uh, I don't suspended. think that, that is a letdown, though. That, they, that was it, just an awesome series. That's the same reason I don't think of the LeBron 2011 thing as a letdown, because that was the Mavs being awesome. Like LeBron and, and Kyrie were dropping 40 a game for the final like three or four games of that series. It was ridiculous. Yeah, I guess the way I look at it is if I was a member of that team or like a diehard fan of that team— the yeah, 2011 if I was a Warriors player, it would be yeah. a letdown. Well, the 2011 Heat, that's going to stick with you forever because that was definitely a title they left on the table. And then for the Warriors, it spoiled a 73-win season. It was so self-inflicted with Draymond's silliness. And, you know, not that they choked, but they certainly did not rise to the occasion in Game 7. So uh, for all those reasons, they're going to be haunted by that loss no matter how many titles they win here going forward. So I put it in the letdown category. Okay. Um, next question. Victor says, what do you guys think about Rajon Rondo and Jason Kidd being the last two players to get 25 assists in a single game? It almost it was almost reminiscent of Boston Big 3 Rondo. Does it mean anything? And what would you rather have a point guard consistently do? Put up 25 made shots or get 25 assists? Yeah, I guess the only parallel I see between Rondo and Jason Kidd in 2017 is just they're both bad at their jobs. Uh, That's basically it. Uh, (laughs) You don't have to be an asshole about it, Jimmy Butler. Look, Um. (laughs) I've been anti-Rondo for at least the last five years. I think everything he does is basically a mirage. Uh, To answer the question, I mean, if your point guard's making 25 shots a game, he's probably taking, what, 45 or 50? That doesn't sound like a healthy offense. That's Westbrook. And and at the same time, if your point guard's trying to get 25 assists a game, first of all, he's not going to be able to average 25 assists a game. But if he's chasing that like Rondo does, that's going to be bad for your offense too. I think in an ideal world, you would love to have all five starters averaging five assists a game, right? Like no one's ever going to really get there, but... If you have that level of ball movement and involvement from everyone, that is a healthy offense. In terms of the Rondo thing, the number that I always look at, it's the same thing we talked about with Jimmy, on and off splits. How does it work? If you look at the Pelicans this year with Rondo on the court, their defensive rating is nearly 10 points worse than when he's on the bench. Now, this is not some amazing defensive juggernaut ever. So imagine how bad they are playing defense when Rondo's out there. Uh, they've got some issues in transition because, you know, he's just at that point of his career where he's not as locked in as he needs to be. Uh, You know, he hunts things on the defensive end, just like he hunts things on the offensive end. Uh, I guess give him credit for having a big night against the Brooklyn Nets randomly, but past that, I think it's pretty meaningless. And uh, if I were them, I would be looking to upgrade at that position. I just, I will say, I miss the days of the, pass first point guard like I was a big Jamal Tinsley fan years ago and uh like even 
Mark Jackson with the Knicks was more of a passer, not really a shooter, would just sort of like back his ass into people and post the, post them up and either score or or find cutters. And uh, I miss that era. We're kind of past like Rondo is is sort of like a he's like the Ennis Cantor of point guards, and um, John Wall has some of the same problems sometimes. And it would be really, really interesting to watch Jason Kidd today because he was such a freak athlete. Like for most of his career, he was probably one of the five best athletes in the league, and uh, and like he was a phenomenal passer, but didn't really know how to shoot. Like a lot of people talk about him, like he just turned into a good shooter halfway through his career, and it really didn't happen until the very end of his career. And even then, he was kind of like he had to be set. It took him a couple seconds to get, get his shots up. Um, so he wasn't a shooter, but like someone, someone like Jason Kidd and, and even peak Rondo, like with the Celtics, they're just so, so great athletically that it's hard to imagine them not being stars in any area, in any era. But, um, that, that's kind of what I wonder about when I see, when I think about them and, and listening to you talk, like it just, there's a an entire archetype that is sort of becoming extinct. Well, I think that's exactly what we need to do here. We need to have a challenge the open floor globe. We need to have comparisons between player archetypes and extinct animals. So like who's the dodo bird? <laughs> is that the pass first point guard? Like I feel like Rondo would be a good dodo bird. Cuz cuz I'll admit like my natural biology and, you know, geology and all that kind of stuff is pretty weak. Like I just did not do very well in those classes in school. I know we've got some super sharp scientist minds out there who will be able to put this together for us. I want to hear your best suggestions. Extinct animals versus extinct NBA archetypes. Openfloormail at gmail.com. All right. Next question from Hoops and Grooves says, do you guys have thoughts on where Denver's Tory Craig falls in the fake news NBA player race? He's no Maxi Kleiber, but I think he deserves some recognition for his anonymity. Uh, I've loved the Tory Craig story. I don't know if you've been following it, but he kind of came in from, I think he was playing pro basketball in Australia for a few years, and he was starting for the Nuggets for a couple games. I didn't check to see whether he started last night, but he's playing big minutes for the Nuggets and kind of just came in out of nowhere. And I, so I don't put him in the Maxi Kleiber category because he seems like he's actually a pretty useful wing for them. And I think he speaks to a different phenomenon that's taking hold in the NBA. So, but I will let you respond if to if you have any Tory Craig takes. No, I'm co- I'm coming hard the other way, and I want I'm going to see if I can convince <laughs> you. Here's why. First of all, his name is a fake news name. There's no question. But his college is also a fake news college. Do you it know where is he definitely w- a fake college. Do you know where he <laughs> went to school? Did he go to like did Did he go to SC State or something? So even better, he went to University of South Carolina upstate and first of all it doesn't sound like a real school but the even that better sounds part, like the school that was recruiting jesus shuttlesworth exactly but the even better part about that school name is it involves like it's a contradictory directional school you know it's like south carolina but upstate so i actually looked on the map like i didn't even know south carolina had an upstate sure enough uh-huh. uh, it is located in upstate south carolina if you want to call it that but it's just so funny i mean imagine like 
Eastern West Virginia or like South North Dakota state. Like it just, yeah. it, it boggles your mind. And it's funny because there's a bank in Michigan that's called the fifth third bank because they merged and they just like kept the fifth and the third. So it's not the 53rd. It's not like the five third. It's the fifth third. And it just drives me bonkers because it's a little bit redundant. That's kind of how I feel about the University of South Carolina upstate. So I think Tory Craig has pushed aside Maxi. I think he is now our number one fake news player. We no pro- way. There's, well, I'm not going to let you. I'm not going to let you make him. He, Tory Craig is a solid defensive stopper on the wing. He's like a poor man's Roberson. That's that's how I'm choosing to contextualize him. Maxi Kleiber is again like a, a buddy of Holger and and, and a favor <laughs> to Dirk. He's definitely the fake news winner and also. I, I, I like Maxi Kleiber in this spot because every year now, the Mavericks sign someone that we've never heard of. Last year, I think it was Nicholas Brasuno or Brasino. And so it's kind of just like a tick that Rick Carlisle has. Like he's probably got it written into his contract. And I also think he, he takes pride in playing guys that no one has ever heard of and finding a way to like not win, but lose by, by five points and cover the spread. So that's sort of like his move, but uh, the Tory Craig thing. So you probably didn't read this, but I, I pro- like a month ago, Jonathan Jarks for the Ringer wrote about this this new trend in the NBA where teams are pulling like journeymen from Europe who are capable of helping them immediately. Um, like the Spurs did that with Brandon Paul. The Celtics did it with Daniel Tice, um, and then Tory Craig is another one who came from Australia. Like, it's actually it's something we should keep an eye on because it's a really smart way to sort of fill out your rotation. If you can find someone who's going to be able to be useful for like fifteen or twenty minutes a game. Granted, like the Nuggets are so thin on the wing that Tory Craig has outsized value to them, but it's something that every team should be doing. Yeah, last point in defense of Maxi. I saw his first name fully spelled out in a database. Uh-huh. He he might lead the league in vowels. I mean, this guy's got like six or seven extra letters when you get to like the full Maximilian. Um, it's a very long, complicated name. I could definitely not spell it with my eyes closed. So from that standpoint, there's there's some intrigue on that side too. Like his formal name and his nickname, both are kind of fake news. Yeah, it's great. I also don't think I've ever met a Maximilian who isn't German. Um, so it's a good good move for him. Uh, but let's move on here. So Will says, we'll keep it in Europe. Um, Will says, I'm a lifelong fan of the NBA, but I'm based in England and I've never seen an NBA game live. My, my friend Oliver got me tickets to this year's Sixers Celtics game in London. What should I be looking out for? What are the little things that you guys love about live NBA basketball that I might miss in all the excitement of being in the same room as coffee shop Kyrie? I'm also including a couple links to national parks of the United Kingdom. We have a perfect 15 park roster that will hopefully swing you guys toward answering the question. Well, I wouldn't call it a perfect 15-park roster. First of all, I followed their official National Parks account on Instagram. Andrew, you and I actually have basically as many followers as the official uh, England National Parks uh, account. That's a bad sign, uh-huh. you know, because nobody really follows us, unfortunately, even though we you know, really go out of our way to promote it uh, every single episode, Ben Doc Oliver. But um, 
in I terms don't think of his, the British are, are really like prone to hiking the way some Americans are. I think they're more of an indoor people, and uh, that's definitely why I <laughs> gravitate toward them. <laughs> it, no. Like British people and no. Irish people are, are really more my speed. It, it's a matter of acreage and square footage. You know, I mean, you, you could put all of their country in like you know New Mexico Texas. or something. Yeah, we we just have more room to work with, more likelihood of of amazing wonder and brilliance outside. It's no knocks on the British. By the way, the crown has really gone crazy. I mean, Prince Philip, the Duke, man, he's just a bad guy. But anyways, back on point here. Not a fan of Philip. Not a fan. Oh, it's it's unbelievable how he treats Elizabeth Regina. It just bothers me to no end. His pouting, his moping. But when Yo, you're going to the you game, you know what though? Yeah. Hold on. <laughs> just to just to sidetrack us a little bit more. The thing I love about the crown is watching every episode and then doing like 20 to 25 minutes of Wikipedia research afterward. And it's kind of crazy. All of that stuff really happened, or most of it. Like, I don't know if you're to the point with, uh, to the episode with Jackie Kennedy, but there was a real rivalry there. I'm not going to spoil it for anyone who hasn't followed history that happened 50 years ago um, and hasn't seen the show, but... All of that stuff is real. The one thing that they kind of exaggerated was the proflumo of uh, like the that scandal and Philip's involvement in it, but in case you were wondering, it's well, mostly accurate. I'm with the New York Times reviewer who called the Jackie Kennedy episode the worst of the series. I thought they did Jackie dirty. I thought the the way they portrayed her. First of all, Jack's accent was awful. I mean, I've never <laughs> yeah, that I, was pretty rough. <laughs> I've never seen a worse JFK in my entire life. No offense to that actor. Uh, but they did Jackie dirty and how they portrayed her. I don't think they should be sm- be smirching her reputation given what she had to go through. Uh, that okay. was very unfortunate. In terms of going to an NBA basketball game, if you're a British fan, I hate to say this because it's going to probably ruin his entire night, but I wouldn't go to a game in London because I have no idea how the crowd there is going to react because they're probably all going to be as clueless as this guy. He's never been to a game before. If you can possibly go to a game, try to go to a playoff game at one of the stadiums we've mentioned being really good. That's going to give you the full NBA experience. However, in London, the main thing you should try to concentrate on, try to get as close as you can to the bench, listen to the trash talk, watch the towel waving, the reactions, the interactions with the referees, the player on player stuff, you know, the goofy celebrations, handshakes, all that stuff, because you can get little pieces of that on a television broadcast, but you really can't get the full experience Uh, unless you're there. And then on top of that, I would also say if you're really cheering one way or the other for one of those teams, definitely get in on the heckling. Like that is really fun. Don't cross the line. Don't be a jerk about it. Don't go like full uh, hooligan, you know, don't go soccer hooligan on it. But, you know, if you have a favorite player like Embiid, you know, for example, uh, you know, at the Sixers game, I mean, go after him a little bit uh, or, you know, get his back and go after Kyrie, you know, be a part of the living, breathing organism. Yeah, I'm with you, um, especially on the playoff rec. I mean, if you're expecting an NBA game to be really fun and something that, like, delivers on the hype, you've got to go to a playoff game because, honestly, NBA regular season in person is something of an acquired taste. Like, I love it, uh, but most most of the normal people who aren't NBA addicts that I bring to games are like, They'll come into a Wizards game, and granted, Wizards are like bottom half as far as live experience, but they'll come in and be like, wow, so this is it, huh? Like, it seems pretty subdued in here, and nobody really, like, 
gets into it until the final couple minutes. Um, but I, I agree with Ben that watching the interaction between timeouts, tracking who's paying attention to their coach and who's spacing out and watching the jumbo, Jumbotron is also good. Um, tracking the guys who are on the bench and get like way too into it. Like Jason Smith for the Wizards will hop up off the bench and high five, like literally anyone who's walking off the court. Um, and then also speaking of high fives, like in person, you can really appreciate how intricate some of the handshakes are that go on in the NBA. And that's another thing that doesn't really come through, uh, on TV, but for the most part, just go. I feel like, I mean, you're clearly in England and you don't have many other options. So just go go Ouch. in with low expectations and uh, and then come over and get to like a Celtics playoff game because that's a whole other level that is harder to appreciate when like in the regular season. Yeah, other thing I would do, go super early, go with something to get autographed and just be a rascal, you know? Just like try to get down <laughs> there. <a> <laughs> just try to get down there, get close to the court. Uh, and try to get yourself an autograph or a selfie with the players. A lot of times they'll be willing to do that, especially if you get there super early. And then I'd also say watch warmups. I've always loved watching warmups, just seeing yeah, what guys work on, uh, what they do, what kind of rhythm they're in. Um, that's definitely going to be worth the price of admission too. So get in there as soon as the doors open and and treat it sort of like Disneyland. Run around, you know, try to get wherever you can, and and see what happens. By the way, the main thing, the main piece of advice we should give here. It's Sixers Celtics. So number one, pray that Joel Embiid is healthy. And number two, you can do like a decent strategy is to just watch Joel Embiid for three hours straight because he is nonstop entertainment on the court, on the bench. And uh, yeah, you won't be disappointed if you go that route. So good luck. And now it is time for the podium. We've got a couple questions to run through here at the end. The first one is a correction of sorts. Um, this is from this is from Michael, who says, regarding the Open Floor podcast, I have never been more upset than when Andrew Sharp confused Carl Weathers and Reginald Vell Johnson when dismissively discussing Die Hard. Um, we heard from a, like five to ten listeners about my screw up regarding Carl Weathers. I, I, I said that Carl Weathers was the black cop in Die Hard. And in fact, it was Reginald Vell Johnson who played Carl Winslow um, elsewhere. But yeah, man, I first of all, I just want to clarify that I was not dismissively discussing Die Hard. I grew up on Die Hard, Die Hard 2, and Die Hard with a Vengeance. Those were formative movies for me. So it, honestly, I took it pretty hard that I got that wrong. Um, but uh, I appreciate everyone <laughs> who reached out to correct me. Well, and, here's one uh, here's one thing I'd say though, Andrew, because if I haven't seen a movie, you go one of two ways. You either like go all in on it, it's the best thing ever and I'm an idiot for not seeing it, or you back down very quickly and you kind of dismiss it. And remember, this got you in trouble previously with the Parks and Rec thing because you did the same thing. <laughs> if if so But I, I wasn't think you're, true. Die Hard is not, is on a level above Parks and Rec for me personally. Okay, well that's good to know. Now we really anchored the Parks and Rec people again, you know, <laughs> st strays no. for them. To be clear, though, I was proud of you for not having seen Die Hard because the one thing that annoys me is every year, like, it's Die Hard is kind of like the zany pick for best Christmas movie. And I don't like Die Hard as a Christmas movie. It's just a good action movie. 
but I was proud of you that in the midst of all the like BuzzFeedy articles about how Die Hard is a Christmas movie, you're just sitting there like never having seen it, not really knowing what I'm talking about when I'm comparing Jimmy Butler to John McClane. So it was really more me appreciating you. I wasn't dismissing Die Hard. Yeah, the emailer was mad at me for never seeing the movie too, but tough luck. Sorry, you got other things going on. <laughs> You've got Legos to build. And speaking exactly. of which, we've got a solid group of Lego questions here. You really so, didn't think we were going to get any, but I knew the brickheads would step up, man. I knew they'd come through for me with their builds. <laughs> I can't believe you're going to seriously call them brickheads. Randy send, he says, I built this bad boy a couple Christmases ago and he has a picture of a Ghostbusters Lego. He's got the Ghostbusters car and each individual Ghostbuster. Uh, and he says it was a perfect build paired with a couple glasses of red wine. It's now proudly displayed on a shelf in my den. I will just say that that's one of the things that I enjoyed about Legos as I, as I started thinking this through and taking it more seriously. I'm in New York. I'm, I'm seriously considering braving the elements here and going to check out the Lego mega store in Rockefeller, Ce- Rockefeller Center. Do it. But the thing that people overlook is Legos are actually a cool conversation piece if you put them somewhere in your living room. So I, they're like, if you get some of the cooler, the cooler options, like a, like an Eiffel Tower, like a Ghostbusters Lego, you can actually kind of like pull it off and make it kind of a cool ornament to have in your living room. There's no question. It's really art. And when you came to visit my place, you got distracted by my magnet boards. I mean, that was bound to happen. Right. The, ma- the magnets are unbelievable. But if you had paid a little bit closer attention, you would have seen two shelves full of Legos, each with their own conversation. So I think uh, you're completely right to say they're basically artworks that you should hang in your house. I'm very proud of Randy for doing that. The one thing I'd say, though, is I don't necessarily encourage you know, DWB, you know, drinking while building that can get you into some serious issues. <laughs> DWB. <laughs> it can, it can compromise your perfect build. I mean, Randy, you got away with it once, you know, congratulations, but I would not make that a habit. I would enter future builds with sort of a clear mind, total sobriety. Okay. One more here from Matthew. He says, this is the first email I've ever written to a podcast. It was the Lego discussion that got me. Where is the love for the Star Wars Ultimate Collector's set? Also, I do mine on the floor, so perfect build, be damned. My girlfriend gets me Legos all the time, and there's no shame here. Please don't be a, star, a snob about the Star Wars Legos, and put yours on Instagram. I think that's the real, the real thing that we need here, is we need you to take it to the streets and show us the Big Ben. I heard you got the Big Ben lighting set. You're doing Tower Bridge at the moment. Uh, the people, the people need to see the full collection. I will admit I'm intimidated by tower bridge cause they didn't do numbered bags in terms of where the pieces fall. You know, usually they give you different sets. It's just I think a free... we might be in too deep at this no. point. We're not going to start going no. into the numbered bags. We are, we are because it's just 4,000 pieces randomly. It's like the biggest puzzle of all time. You have no idea where anything goes. It's, it's very tricky. I'm a little bit overwhelmed, intimidated. I'll pull myself together, hopefully over the weekend, make some progress on it. In terms of the Star Wars thing, there is no question if you just went on pure aesthetics that the Star Wars Legos are easily the best. Like if you go to that Lego store in New York, and you should, you will see these Star Wars kits built. They'll have them in glass as if they're like, you know, Van Gogh paintings or something. 
and they will blow your mind. You will stand there staring at them for five minutes thinking like, which one of the employees built this? How do I become their best friend? Uh, the problem is if it doesn't have any personal meaning to you, it's useless after you build it. And that's the issue with me for Star Wars is I couldn't tell you who any of the characters are or, you know, what they do, what the different ships are. So having that on my shelf uh, in my office would have no personal meaning to me. And I think that's, I just got to let that ship sail. I don't think I'm ever going to like Star Wars. <laughs> I'm not trying that's to say I'm, I'm better than him, uh, but I am seeding the point that even as cool as Big Ben is and all of that, I mean, uh, the Star Wars are on a different level. Yeah, I, I feel like Star Wars is sort of amateur nerdery, and you're like far beyond that with your magnet collection and your extensive expert Lego collection. So I don't think you need to worry about liking Star Wars. Um, and look, you're gay. You're sucking me into. I'm, I'm about to go to the Lego store in New York City. Uh, no, look. Two more one, questions here. One of my mottos certainly is to try to influence the influencers, and I think I've I've had that effect upon you here with the Legos. It's unbelievable how brainwashed you are on this issue. If I just <laughs> could have had the same success with James Harden in the MVP race last year, I would be such a happier person. But look, I'm not going to nitpick. I'm going to take my wins here, uh, and certainly I'm proud of the effect I've had on you. One more thing, and in terms of you affecting someone, James says, uh, tonight I mentioned to my girlfriend that there was a segment on Open Floor on adult Legos. Two years ago, on our third anniversary, I bought her the same Eiffel Tower set that Sharp took so much pleasure building. Since she is also a PhD student, she found little time to devote to this project. And then in marches Ben Golliver with the insights to reach my best friends in ways I'm just not able. He mentions his arbitrary restrictions that he places on himself while building, and she exclaims that it's just like when she does a complicated Sudoku and forced herself to refrain from scrap paper. We have one week left in our break before classes begin, and my guess is that Golliver has inspired my girlfriend, Kelsey, to build a masterpiece. So congrats there. You, you, you lured in another potential builder here. Well, I replied to that email within four minutes of it arriving last <laughs> night. I was so excited. I just want to say on the podcast, like I said in the email, Kelsey, have a perfect build. You're going to have such a good time with it. They really don't take down much time. I mean, honestly, how much time did it take you to build the Eiffel Tower? Like an hour maybe or what? Uh, like an hour and a half. I was, I was kind of an amateur and I was also trying to watch the Warriors game. Yeah, so I think... There's a mental block here, like, oh, Lego is going to be a hassle. It's not a hassle. It's fun. You know, it's a real great pastime. Everybody should be into it. All right. Last question here. Uh, Non-Legos. This is from Andrew, who sent us in a video, and I'm not sure. If it, video is hard I, because this is a podcast, but people should watch this jazz video because they, well, they released... I a video promoting their new Nike jerseys. And Andrew says, hold on I'm one pretty second. sure the, what? hold on one second. Cause I think I can describe this video uh, in this audio format. Listeners, okay. imagine I had the best drone in the world. Imagine I had Steven Spielberg as my director. And then imagine I had an unlimited budget and all summer long to go around Utah filming the most beautiful places in the state. And then also imagine that I was on my high horse about like the values and virtues of basketball and how it makes us better <laughs> as a society. So I was like going out to farmland and taking, you know, amazing drone photos of like an empty basketball court behind a, a big red barn and you know, having a, a very mul <laughs> a multicultural cast of 
uh, of, you know, happy basketball playing youngsters, you know, strolling through a canyon and, and checking out, you know, Delicate Arch and all my favorite five national parks in Utah. That is what this video was. So I don't know how I didn't actually produce this video. I'm so jealous that I didn't, but that was the video. Yeah, it was targeted to Ben Golliver specifically. I'll tweet it out tomorrow. It's just absolutely hilarious. And did th- so it's basically a series of these pastoral shots of Utah, like the the Utah canyons, the Utah rivers, like basically everything that Golliver has been like talking about on this podcast for the last two years. Um, and then it, and there's there's a script. It says, "This is our state." A state where Mother Nature played favorites. A state known for its beauty and wonder. This season, a jazz jersey will celebrate Utah's canyon lands, its breathtaking arches, its picture-perfect sunsets. We celebrate the cascading colors of Utah. And as this script is running throughout the video, there's a there's a song playing. It's like a a hokey country song called You Are Gold by a band called The National Parks. So really, this is <laughs> just... It's perfect. They're going it all, hard look, after the Van Golliver demographic here. Andrew, it's incredible. It all came together perfectly. Brilliant design, brilliant execution, <laughs> brilliant Are you going to buy a jazz jersey now? Did it work? I was, thinking, I was thinking about it, like which jazz player's jersey should I get? I think it, most people would say Donovan Mitchell. That's an obvious one, but... I don't know if it totally, you know, he's he's just new there. Does he completely represent what the state and the jersey is all about? I don't I know. I think you got to get a Derek Favors jazz jersey oh just before he gets God. traded. You have to I, make it happen. I can't believe I didn't think of that. That's so funny and smart. I will do that. But if anyone hasn't seen the jerseys, they're pretty ugly, wouldn't you say? Yeah. Well, we, I mean, I don't really have anything interesting to say about the Nike jerseys, except that, like, they maybe went two of 30 uh, in terms of like stuff that is actually cool. Like the heat Jersey is cool. The bucks Jersey is kind of cool, but beyond that, I'm shocked at how bad they were. Yeah. The, the jazz one, it was sort of trying to do like a rainbow gradient effect, similar to the old nuggets jerseys, but kind of sideways and not really the same thing. I mean, it. I, I will say this, it did conjure up, the Utah landscape, because you see the red rock, you see the brilliant orange sun <laughs> over the mountains. Like it make, it puts you there. Like it puts you, you know, staring over the cliff of Bryce Canyon. Uh, you know, it, it puts you in panorama iPhone mode. There's no question about it. I guess I'm going to reserve judgment till I see them where, you know, on the court, see how well, well it looks on you, TV. Until you get your favors Jersey in the mail. I mean, get on Nike.com like this afternoon and make it happen. Yeah, that might have to be a custom joint. I don't know if they're selling those quite yet. But uh, <laughs> regardless, everyone should watch the video. Forget about the jerseys. Don't worry about the actual jerseys. Just watch the video. Yeah, I'm going to try and embed the song at the end of this podcast. But anyways, this has been fun. A good nonsensical rambling pod to end 2017, which was a, a pretty terrible year outside of the NBA. The NBA really helped keep us sane, and uh, it's been fun with you. So thank you, and no, thank it, you to everyone who's written in. It's been it's been good. We've had a good run. It's been a fantastic year for Open Floor. It's crazy to see the growth, guys. We really appreciate all the interactions, the tweets. You know what I love now, Andrew? People are tagging me with funny jokes on Instagram. You know, we'll have some inside joke. Maybe it's like Maxi or, or whatever it might be. Like someone's going to come and tag me on a Tory Craig thing later tonight after they listen to sure. this. 
It's going to be fantastic. I love that. Send in the questions, openfloormail at gmail.com, openfloormail at gmail.com. Five stars on Apple Podcasts. Andrew, you have homework. On the next episode, I need you to have a New Year's resolution. Take it seriously. No nonsense, fake resolutions. We're all about self-empowerment and betterment here uh, at Open Floor, and I'm going to come with my own as well. We can discuss uh, and ridicule and mock and do the things that we do in 2018. All right, man. I can't wait. I will talk to you next week. Another great edition of Open Floor is in the books. Did you know Locked On has a daily podcast for all 30 NBA teams? If you're a Lakers fan, search Locked On Lakers. A Celtics fan, search Locked On Celtics. Warriors fans, search Locked On Warriors. Yes, all 30 NBA teams have a daily bite-sized podcast on the Locked On Podcast Network. Search on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts for Locked On, your favorite team. Or tell your smart speaker to play podcasts Locked On, your favorite team. It's the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day.